With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, listeners. Today is January 8th, 2014. I can hardly believe it. I don't know where year 2013 went. But today I want to welcome Dr. Craig Weiner. He's a licensed psychologist. He's based in Worcester, Massachusetts. And he specializes in the treatment of children, adolescents, and families. He obtained his doctorate degree from the Clark University and he's a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. Hello, Craig. I'm so glad to have you back on our show. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I guess today what we want to concentrate on is the your kind of no-nonsense guide that you've written about nurturing self-reliance and um, cooperation with um, ADHD uh, children and basically um, the parents managing this um, ADHD. So I thought we would start with telling our listeners how you got involved in this particular area. Yeah, so I I did a postdoctoral study at a uh, youth guidance center, and a lot of my early cases were about uh, with kids that back in those days, 35 years ago, it was uh, called minimal brain dysfunction. So for for decades, there's been this category to describe a group of behaviors that kids do that uh, identifies them as if they have some kind of uh, neurological delay. Or neurological impairment. Uh, it's really considered a delay, but it, it's seen as emanating from a problematic uh, body. And these kids are given this diagnosis, and it implies um, a lesser ability to control oneself. And uh, it's it, it, so. Then the problem is, over the years, this thing has uh, ballooned into now more than 11 percent of the kids are getting identified that way, and it's even higher in certain uh, ethnic groups. So it's a worthwhile uh, problem, and it concerned me from the very beginning that these kids were being seen as um, having a biological problem when, when to me, it seemed like they were behaving and the behaviors had certain kinds of advantages. uh, Even though they were difficult for people, the youngsters would monopolize the attention. They would avoid the things they didn't like. They had no trouble with the things they liked, initiated, and enjoyed, but they had trouble with the things that other people were trying to limit them and expect them to do. So it, it, it was a peculiar biological problem. So I looked into the the, uh, the evidence of the biological causation and studied that, and I came up with a way to help these kids change these behaviors through psychology. 
so that while the medications which get people to focus and concentrate and work harder, it does that for everybody, they work in the short run. Every, the studies are now showing that over time, like with most drugs, they don't work very well in the long term. So it's worthwhile to help people learn how to help kids who are doing these behaviors behave differently, and you can do it, and I think, in a more productive way, in a safer way, by doing it through psychology. When do, when do children typically get diagnosed with this, and who actually does the assessments? Well, when I first started, there were fewer uh, drugs on the market, so the, the notion of a psychiatrist or doctor's involvement was much more limited, but now primary doctors have the, these, the arsenal of uh, uh, garden-variety uh, uh, psychotropic medications available, and they, they, they're now treating um, events that used to be in the domain of psychology. So now primary care physicians are involved with the diagnosis, psychologists, social workers, and the schools often uh, trigger a referral for a diagnosis because the kids get, when the kid has to go to school and sit and really do what other people expect them to do, that's when these behaviors show themselves. So it, it's, and now the social group is so, in, uh, um, it's a part of our culture to describe everybody's behavior in these, in terms of these categories of diagnoses that people have evolved. The book the diagnostic book now is, is very, very thick. It was a very thin book when I first started. So now we have we have our whole society diagnosing ourselves. In terms of any variation of behavior now is seen as some problematic deficit that must apply some neurological or genetic uh, malfunction or, or variation that requires treatment. So we have a whole society of doing this now. Well- why do you think this trend developed? Well, I think these are interesting questions. I, um, I think that uh, if, if you give it a name, people start to see themselves in the name, and uh, in the in the uh, our in our interest in trying to find solve problems, we usually solve problems by seeing seeing things as deficits rather than differences. So. That's true. With uh, cultural anthropologists used to go into society, they see cultural differences. They say, "Well, these, this group is is defective. They don't. They're not logical." And then, then, then anthropology got uh, the idea that, "Gee, people can be different. Doesn't mean they have to be defective." Yeah. So people can learn to live in the world differently. But now we have a the notion of disorders. So it's it, that's a quest to protect people and take care of people. We, we're having more and more. Parents would would let kids go out and play and be kids, and now that now everybody's hovering because we're so aware of the problems that could go on. Now we're we're, we're vigilant like, like crazy about who does what, when they do it. Don't do this because it could harm you. So we 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 have we see so many problems and things, and then you have the whole issue about if the more you would develop uh, medicines, now the medicines are developed. They're supposed to treat diagnostic categories. So. It, it becomes like a self-fulfilling uh, machine. Hmm. The other thing I is, there's see. one more thing I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go on. There's one more thing I left out, which was the... They they did a study that said the states with the highest um, ADHD were the states that were most influenced by the No Child Left Behind rule, which was kids to get a... There was several issues, which is kids need a diagnosis to get a treat to get an ed plan a special ed plan in certain areas and they uh they also if they get a diagnosis their scores go off the 
school's record. So there's a there's a three oh. three times as many kids get identified with diagnoses because of because of our attempt to make sure kids pass certain amount, no child left behind. But the rules create a system where you have to get uh, diagnoses. We're doing this now with screenings. You're sending out mm. screenings so that you're identifying people that are not even complaining, but if they do a certain response to a screen, they get a, they, now they get a diagnosis. They said that, the, that online, if people take certain screening for ADHD, 50% of the respondents will qualify for a diagnosis. That's tough. <laughs> That's really tough for the parents. So is the No Child Left Behind still active in all the states? No, I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough of the details about it. I just read this article that was trying to explain the why mm. is ADHD occurring three times as much in this state and not in another mm-hmm. state. Somebody weaved together the, what it was. It had to do with the school system and the laws about uh, who was, uh, what, what, what the diagnosis. The, there's a push to to explain something through the diagnosis to get a kid mm-hmm. on something or off. So it creates a system. I also see that as a society as a whole, this is just my opinion, that we're becoming uh, less tolerant. So this also could play into the ADHD as far as the education system is concerned. You have a an elementary school teacher who has 30 to 40 kids in their classroom and they have five of them that are acting out all the time. They're going to do something with that. Yeah, so that, that brings up another issue. Is we, I was in classes with 45 kids and we didn't budge. There was like one kid or two kids that would get in trouble or something, but it, most of the kids were, there was this notion of, um, uh, it wasn't that much adaptation even from the schools in those days. You just required to conform. Now, there's been a mm-hmm. lot of rebellion. The, hello? I'm here. Oh, there's been a lot of rebellion against the rigidity of society in those days, but on the other hand, there was less, there was less acting out. There was mm-hmm. much more conformity. And we may be raising our kids to not be so rigid with them, but then have we gone to... The other extreme, which is now we expect um, the school to adjust to the kid rather than the kid to adjust to the school. So there's there's a flip-flop in terms of uh, who accommodates to who. So if you have a child that's been diagnosed with ADHD, what are your recommendations on how to nurture their self-reliance and cooperation with the parents versus medicating them. Okay. So the problem is that there's some kids diagnosed with ADHD. It's a very it's a heterogeneous category. So there's a lot of kids diagnosed with ADHD who have learning problems and delays and language problems and negative temperaments and they had um, high activity levels. Other kids and then they're uncoordinated. They have motor problems. And other kids that have ADHD, they have perfect handwriting and they're very athletic and they don't have any of those problems and they can still end up qualifying for the um, category. And the problem is that the category is basically a bunch of different behaviors that have to do with a youngster being intrusive when you don't want them to wait their turn and not intrude 
and to conform, and then they're non-participatory when you want them to participate and achieve and finish what they're supposed to do instead of not doing what they're supposed to do. So they're either intruding or non-participating. They, they all, all the behaviors reduce to something along those lines. And uh, we call them different, different names. We could distractibility, impulsivity, uh, hyperactivity, don't wait your turn, fidget in your seat. But all these behaviors occur in particular situations and circumstances, and all the kids are somewhat different. Their kids are different. They're of individual. The diagnosis implies like they all do it all the same, but they're not. So I try to help a parent understand, well, when is it that these youngsters are doing these particular behaviors and what would help account for, that, for it? So rather than say the neurology makes them uh, distractible, I say, well, when are they not participating? And it's usually in activities that are associated with criticism, failure, anxiety about evaluation. It could be a whole range of psychology that goes with when they don't, when they do distractibility. When are they fidgeting? Based on uh, what behaviors? When are they hyper? When are they loud? And then when are they not loud? Are they loud when you're on the phone, but they're not loud if you're on the phone and they don't want to let you get off the phone because they don't want. They know the bedtime will be if you get off the phone. So then, then they're quiet. So yeah, I try to help a parent understand the child's behavior in terms of what the child does across situations and circumstances. So it's a subtle analysis of the child, which is now lost in today's world of they have something mm-hmm. wrong with them, like they're sick. So you don't study anything anymore. So that's the first step is to figure out when does the child do these, these behaviors and what might be reinforcing them to do these behaviors. Well, what do you do when they're loud and doing this? Well, then you get off the phone. So then they, they learn they learn to be loud. They pull you off the phone. Uh, mm-hmm. If they're distracted and, they, and they're procrastinating, then they learn that you, you'll sit down with them and help them finish. Or or if you, they, they delay their science project and you help them do it, do it for uh, the last minute, then they learn to, to procrastinate. Or if they spend all their money and they give them more, then they learn not to budget their money. Or if, the, if their rooms are a mess and, and you pick it up and or you fight with them until they do it, then you're reinforcing all sorts of behaviors. So it's a, it's a subtle analysis of what the, the parents and children do with each other as relational as a relationship. So I help them get a relationship that has to do with working together in a positive, cooperative way because if you can make the things that the parent wants more reasonable for the child. The child responds without ADHD when it's something that they're interested in and something they enjoy. So you make it less Mm -hmm. aversive, you get rid of the behaviors. Yeah, and and all children need structure in their life. Very much so. That's the whole problem of socializing a kid. The kid has to learn to modulate from infancy, which is really just a self-indulgent time, to a time when Mm -hmm. they're expected to to do something, to participate and contribute and to help others and cooperate with others. So that's what it means to help your kid mature. And we've so, got to, Craig, yeah. give, me an exam- give me an example of, for instance, a, uh, a mother is on the telephone and her child is acting out. What would you recommend that she does to, to help change his behavior? Okay. A lot of things have to do with... Um, being proactive, so like you, you could. If the problem happens once, you're not going to know. You're kind of stuck because the child is going to escalate while you're on the phone, and you may find that it's a problem, and you may have to get off the phone. You may find you go into another room. You may find the kid escalates more and does something dangerous to get you out out of the room. 
it's it's a cat and mouse thing. But there's a point in which you can talk with the kid about, gee, I'm going to be making a call, or uh, is, is there something you'd like to do while I'm on the phone? And uh, I'd like to talk to. It's been the whole notion that you just touch base with somebody, or that they knew that you thought of them, can help. And the other thing that's is, a good idea. Sure, because you're. I have to go do this. Do you want to come bring your stuff mm-hmm. in the other room while I do this, or I'm going to have to do this? What do you want to? What are you going to do with yourself? The kid feels much better that they haven't been uh, forgotten. And mm-hmm. the, the other thing is, uh, you could say, well, gee, last time I was on the phone, you, you you made a lot of noise. It was really difficult for me. What's going on? What, what can we do about it? What would, what would you help the child understand well, what was happening? Depends on the age of the child, of course, or how much, um, uh, what kind of inter- exchange you could have. But a lot of it's problem solving. The kids say, "Well, you you're so nice to your friend. You're yelling at me, and then you get on the phone. You're nice to your friend. I get mad, so I spoil it for you. And then you could talk about mm-hmm. that problem. Who knows what the problem is until you figure it out together? But to make everything, my neurology makes it so I can't stop when you're on the phone. That's silly." to turn everything into mm-hmm. some statement about genetics. It doesn't explain very much. Mm-hmm. What are the five reinforcements for ADHD behavior? Okay, so that's... A, now, the other thing for our listeners is that all these things about ADHD apply to your kid, if even if it's not diagnosed, because it's just ADHD kids just doing these things more extremely than what we all do. We're all non-participatory. We're all... We're all intrusive to some extent, but it's 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 just doing it more to the point where it's a problem for people. So all these things are ways to train your child as well, even if there's no diagnosis. But the reinforcements that I've identified for ADHD are, of course, attention, because loud and hyper behavior can monopolize the social setting, and uh, um, accommodation, which means that if I don't, cooperate with you and accommodate to what you want, I kind of keep making life difficult for you until you do what I want. So that all these kids are getting, uh, they, well, they get extra time, extra uh, uh, fewer requirements, they get people to move along when they want, they get people to help them more. So that it depends on if the child is acting you know, uh, in a way we don't like and then the parent does something that the child wants to help the child settle down, then it's like giving in to a tantrum. And then the the third, it would be acquisition, which means if, if I don't ask you or wait or, or if I go quickly, I can sometimes get what I want before you can stop me. So a lot of behaviors we call uh, hyper or impulsive, they're just somebody acting in such a way that they limit the possibility of other deny, others denying them or stopping them. And then antagonism is, a, is is another one, which is if our relationship is troubled, I may just provoke you and irritate you because that's what people do when they're mad at each other. So a lot of the ADHD behaviors, they look like they're t- attention, but a lot of times there's also anger in in it and a relational issue in it. And one of the big reinforcements for a, a provocative kid is that uh, they can get the parent to um, overreact and then the parent feels badly about what they did and then the parent feel it's kind of a fight and make up thing so that a lot of these kids are provoking the parent the parent doesn't handle it well parent feels badly then the parents there 
uh, willing to accommodate and uh, be caring towards the child. So all these behaviors, they sequence with uh, very interesting social responses that inadvertently, unwittingly, reinforce the child to keep doing these ADHD behaviors. There's a lot of psychology involved in the in the management of uh, of a child with ADHD. So I can see where you know, your everyday parent, if they haven't taken some psychology classes, this could be a, a difficult time for them. What do you recommend? Yeah, so that's, that's why I wrote this book to get parents to be, <laughs> start to be aware of these things. And exactly. Parents aren't getting what they parents are not getting what they need from uh, our prof- my profession at this point because let's say they do get the meds and the med settles the kid down, but then they're also told to put the kid on a, um, a what's called a contingency management system, which is these charts and rewards and punishments and timeout chairs, and uh, that. That's a that's just telling telling the parent to go socialize the kid like we do in institutions like jails and residential settings. And if you think your kid's gonna be socialized in a reasonable way in that format, I think you're gonna have a big surprise. Because controlling somebody's resources as a way to get them to do what you want is a very limited way to socialize somebody. And you have a lot of side effects from that, just like they do when people spend a lot of time in jails or residential settings. The kid learns a lot of behaviors that to counteract your attempts to control their resources. Mm-hmm. None of us mm-hmm. want to be controlled by somebody else. Mm-mm. Yeah. So the, the problem is how do a, how does a parent who maybe was socialized with uh, power and control, how do they even learn the language or the way to relate that's what's called mutual exactly. or cooperative? Or, or, yeah, it's a subtle thing. That's why people have very low low success rates with anything because it's hard to have a relationship that's comfortable with anyone, with a boss, a mm-hmm. spouse. But if you mm-hmm. raise your child to learn to be mutual and cooperative, then you have a chance in this world to make it make it in in, in employment and with a, a spouse and to be a reasonable mm-hmm. parent as well. So I like to get parents to... Um, to help their kids learn this. Now, I, I like to start as early as I can. Like, I, I like to get kids in when they just start walking or even before, but when a youngster starts walking, that's where the action really starts because that's when the kid's mobile enough to start touching the things that you don't want them to touch as a way to control where your attention goes. So unless mm-hmm. you can help your kid learn to be in a social setting and occupy themselves and or or learn to be part of the social setting without distracting people, the group, their direction by doing negative limit testing, you're going to run the risk of patterning in ADHD behaviors unwittingly. So I help parents mm. learn how to how do you redirect a year and a half a kid who's a year and a half old or or 10 months old or or a year old from touching the stuff on the desk and getting them back to the toys without reinforcing the notion that Every time I go to the desk, I can get you to stop talking to your friend and you have to deal with me, okay? Mm-hmm. These ADHD kids learn all the dangerous things and all the things that they get a reaction from an adult. That's what they learn to do. And they may learn this because they're active. They may learn this because 
they, they had negative temperaments or they may learn it because the, they were de- developmentally delayed in some way and the parent uh, from the beginning was was accommodating just to maintain the kid. So the kid learned to be over, exceptionally focal. The kid could have had a father that left so the parent may feel badly the kid somehow deprived because they didn't have a father so there's accommodation mm-hmm. can occur. So you get this kid that's now somehow patterning to be focal so that when as soon as the parent starts to get distracted with anything else, the kids it's a, like a threat or an insecurity, and the kid starts doing this kind of ADHD stuff, and it happens very very predictable ways when when depending on what's going on in the, in the social setting. Well, if that behavior is ingrained from the time that they're walking, uh, and then all of a sudden they enter the school system, and then they um, you know the, the educators want them diagnosed which they are that's a pattern of 5 years 4 to 5 years that a parent has to then learn to unlearn with that I child right on the money with that that's the whole problem and by then it's how how effective can anyone be with 5 years of learning and unlearning that's right that's the problem. Seems like all yeah. the the wiring in the brain has already happened. Yup. And then then the then you deal with uh, neuroplasticity. Is, is how effective are we going to be in rechanneling what's already developed? You don't undo it. But and how you, effective? And how effective are you in in your in the practices of of psychology helping these children? So. And how long does it take? It takes, well, that's a problem for all of us is, you know, to, to say, like, what's the learning curve? Like, what's the interest level? Of the, can I get the parent to be fascinated by the possibility of, of understanding that the, what's going on be, between them and their child? Some parents get fascinated by that, and they really like learning this stuff. And other parents may find it less appealing or more difficult uh, based on their own uh, histories of... Um, how they were raised, or what, who the child is for them, uh, how well, how in tune is the parent to psychology in general? How how easy is it to go to appointments? Like you can give medications and have to to go to a therapy appointment week by week over time. But for people that get excited by this and want to do it and study it, the, I, I get lots of people telling me that. Boy, their kids are doing this now, and they're doing that now, and they're initiating helping now. So I, I, I get reinforced that what I'm doing makes sense and gets results. Problem is this is to get any of this to occur on a large scale basis. I think the only thing that happens large scale for people is that they buy into the meds, which work at, in the short term, and then when mm-hmm. they stop working, they just do new meds because they're the whole history of medication is to promise people oh, this med is better than the last med because it solved the other meds' problems, but people don't recognize this new med now introduces new problems. And you go back to the whole history of medication, from Milltown and uh, and all those early meds, they, was, they had to take them off the market, and they're always coming up with a new magic pill. So people mm. people will be more interested in the pill, and then they'll be more interested in controlling the child, because to everybody, it's easier to control a child. Where you, you count to three, sit them in the chair. You, if they do this, you give them a reward. Everybody follows a script, but the script's going to give you a very limited outcome and a lot of side effects. But 
on the short term, the script may look also look like it works well because you can dominate somebody or you can get some consistency going, and that improves things too. But you really don't see all the limitations of the, of the intervention until as it plays out over time. My intervention plays out over time much like the research on psychoanalytic work, which is the benefits of the work increase over time rather than decrease over time so that you get the new therapies often show very quick results, but they peter out and they're limited, whereas some, some of the other uh, psychodynamic work may be, take a little longer, but the effects build. So you mm-hmm. have to deal with the, how are you measuring your outcomes? Uh, what, what are you looking for over time to happen? But uh, I think it's the same thing as the type 2 diabetes, which is you can give a person meds and you can solve the type 2 diabetes, but if they change their lifestyle, they're going to have a much better outcome than if they went in the med route. But if you look what goes on in primary care settings, everybody's opting for the meds. They're not changing their lifestyle. Hmm. Craig, how do these um, medicated children perform in school? What levels are they performing? Well, they, they, there's a lot of controversy about whether it has any long-term effect on grades, and apparently a lot of studies show that it doesn't. But it does increase the child's um, willingness to do the work, finish the work, sit in the chair, and not be disruptive. And I've gotten numerous reports that when a kid gets put on the meds, they get to be student of the month, and everybody's happy. And that's, oh. the, that's the initial... Response: Eighty hmm. percent of the people respond positively to the meds. Okay. So that's a that's a big sell. But then the, then mm-hmm. the Johns Hopkins just showed that if you go six years out, the medicated group performs no better than the untreated group. Hmm. Okay. So okay. it starts off great. Well, think about anybody where they start off drinking alcohol. They're having fun. They're partying. They're less inhibited. So what happens if you keep drinking alcohol? Alcoholic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not what it was when you first started. Hmm. I'm not saying that. that the, the idea is that what happens is your you, your body has to adjust to the fact that you're putting a med in it, and that means that it has to compensate to deal with this foreign substance. So you get all that the body reaction that way, and then you, you learn to learn and live in the world on the med, and life takes itself over, so you have to either increase the dose or add a med. But all you're really mm. doing is either jacking yourself up or sedating yourself. You're playing around with emotions. I'd rather help the kid learn to deal what is the emotion you're having and deal with it. I don't want to sedate mm-hmm. it or, or change it. I want to work with it. And if you look at any any good therapy, is always looking to get the client to deal with their emotion that's either being denied or repressed or... Um, overstated, and it, it, it's a way to help somebody. You can get this notion of, of um, emotional, uh, reasonable emotional behavior through helping somebody learn about what their emotions are about. Why is that a trigger? What are they responding to? Well, I can see the dangers in that if their emotions are being suppressed, then their their growth as a as a human being is stymied and then if they're on these medications up through their their teens which typically is a t- is a tough time 
as a young adult, how do they turn out? How are well, they managing either, their lives and the people that's around That's right. Them? I think I think that you're identifying beautiful things there because there's a lot of concern with the kid being uh, having some social problems because they get uh, focused on. If you take a stimulant, you get focused on what's in front of you. It's really like what if your kid plays Nintendo all day and doesn't socialize other than through mm-hmm. the Nintendo? You're missing a lot of alternative experiences. So what are the what are the side effects of the meds that aren't even being measured? Maybe it's not just heart problems or this problem or that problem. Maybe it, maybe there is. What about all the obesity with the ADHD group now? Is that related to the med taking, which changes? Oh, the is metabolism? there a high rate of obesity? Yeah, but they're going to say it's because oh. ADHD people don't regulate themselves. But they always explain oh, I didn't know it. That. The, yeah, you could explain it in many different ways, but who knows the source? I don't know the answer to that mm. question. So we don't know what happens to the... They haven't done any studies to show what happens to these these children when they become adults and how they're managing their lives. Well, they do. They have, they have the famous Milwaukee long-term study which says that ADHD persists for a lot of people and that they, mm-hmm. uh, they have trouble with employment. They're the ones that stand up at tables and yell at their bosses and get fired. Interesting enough, they're, they're more successful on self-employment, which goes with my hypothesis that they have no trouble when they're in control. It's they have trouble when oh. they're not in control. So why would a person who why would a person who has the, the supposed deficits of ADHD be able to manage uh, self-employment, which requires the most organization, self-discipline, right? Yeah. How 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 could that be if it was what they say it is? But it, mm-hmm. in my in my view, of course it is because if they initiate the activity, they they perform very differently than if I tell them what to do. Mhm. Mhm. Why don't they do homework? Homework's the biggest example of somebody imposing on you. You're taking away your free time, making you do something somebody else wants when mm-hmm. you're at home. Hmm. So how do uh, parents manage uh, their behavior away from home when they're out so in that's public? A, yeah, exactly. So that's a problem with uh, for parents is that these kids, uh, a lot of times uh, the question is if you're taking the kid away from home, are you on some errand that has to do with um, dragging them to places they don't want to be? So the problem is who decides where you're going and the pace of where you're going and what you're doing? And the, the kids acting out is usually, I see it as an objection to what the agenda. So it, I try to get parents to work those problems out before they leave the house. How much input mm-hmm. does the kid have in, in the errand? If you go into Toys R Us, are you going to get the same ADHD as if you go into an antique store? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. But, I mean, that's but that's normal childhood behavior, and I think so that's, that's the point that you're trying to make with yeah. the listeners, is that so you can't you can't put everything into an ADHD bucket. <laughs> ADHD is a set of behaviors, and nobody knows. You can you can say you do it because your genes made you do it. You can do it because your brain is making you do it. But your brain's only. A, correlated activity to how you behave so 
cab drivers in London have different brains than non-cab drivers in London because if you drive a cab all day, your brain develops differently. So if you do ADHD all day, your brain's different. But it doesn't mean your brain's causing ADHD. It means if you do ADHD, that's how your brain is. If you don't exercise, your body's a certain way too. Mm-hmm. So the ADHD bucket is just, it's just, every time a kid doesn't do their homework or is distracted, maybe I have ADHD, that's why I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm distracted, I have ADHD. It becomes a repository for uh, to explain everything. It's like a ghost. When a kid, when these kids start school, what can the parents do to help them adjust? Because it's kind of a scary time for them. It's an insecure time for them. And that alone creates a lot of anxiety. So and the problem is raising... The parents can't, you know, and the parents can't really say to them, well, well, honey, um, I'm dropping you at school today, and from 9 to 10, you're going to be doing this, and from 10 to 11, you're going to be doing this, because they don't know what the teacher's itinerary is. Yeah, so you can't be proactive that way. The only The only chance you really got as a parent is... Start like with the year old and learn to help your kid learn to adapt to the group and be part of a group or be, or be a participant. Don't if you mm-hmm. don't make it all about your kid or or either ignoring your kid too much can can make for a kid to be hyper and provocative or indulging your kid. Either way can also create the problem. So you're doing the legwork to adjust your kid to school all before your kid's school age because you have to help the okay. kid learn to function in groups. I make so if you, so if you have yeah. several children so if you have you know several children in the family that's your that's your training ground right there beautiful so you, if you help the kid learn to be part of part of a kid group where they learn to coordinate and share and operate as mm-hmm. a, as, in a, as a team you're already setting them up for classroom behavior mhm We've lost that in our society because we don't, we don't really even eat dinners together. We, we used to play games together. Uh, the games require us to, to have rules and take turns. I don't know what kids do if they even do any of these organized things. Do more board games with your kids where they have to learn what it means to, to do something together. How do you get your kids mm-hmm. to stay involved in a conversation when it's just not about them? Mm-hmm. You know, the, it won't have to be couple- something they're interested in. That's the problem, but how do you get them to modulate so they learn, what if we talk about something somebody else is interested in? What would be so terrible? And how can they mm-hmm. learn to be interested in what somebody else is interested in? That's the whole problem of mm-hmm. teaching your kid to, to, to care about others. Well, you know, we have, we have the, um, the added complication of uh, technology now and you know, we're moving out at such a fast pace with that. And unfortunately, I mean, as adults, you walk down the street, people aren't even looking at each other anymore. They're staring at their cell phone screens. They're not even interacting with each other. So that's another point. That's right. So is that preventing us from learning what it means to function in school? Where you, well, they'll soon they'll make schools online. You can just sit in front of the computer. You won't be part of a class. You just do school. Well, that's happening and now. A, well, so ADHD kids do better on, on the self, self-paced things like that, where they don't have to perform in front of others. You don't have to expose mm-hmm. your, your incompetence. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you can, and no one's telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. 
So that's all. We're, we're essentially sidestepping the thing. We won't learn those behaviors. We'll just do these individual things mm-hmm. in front of computers. And they're starting out very, very young now. Even that's the toys, right. they're all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do it yourself. I suppose that kind of segues into um, teaching your child self-care, or is that a different different when you well, speak of it? Um, well, self-care is uh, that you want them to learn to uh, manage what it means to brush and wash and dress and okay. uh, and do all those things uh, without the notion that the parent cues it. The kid learns... If they don't do it, then the parent cues it, then the kid just waits around for parental cue. And then you just train somebody, to, what kind of spouse does that make where the other spouse doesn't want that work of having to cue and remind and maintain all mm-hmm. the So that's a, you want to set your kid up so that the, they, they take care of themselves that way. Where they know when the, when the, if they can't tell time on the clock, they can learn with some other cue that says it's a signal to go to bed, to start bedtime. And you mm-hmm. want a kid to learn to have uh, cues that they can manage on their own without the notion that you have to cue them. Now, that's a very different idea than what's commonly recommended for parents with ADHD kids. That they're told that their kid can't possibly self-manage, so therefore you always have to manage for them. So then it's the parent reminding constantly. It's setting up timers to give external signals. And the kid essentially doesn't learn any self-management because they always learn to depend on all... It's like the presumption that they're unable make uh, ensures that they will be unable. Mhm, mhm. That self-reliance just isn't there. Yes. Yeah. So then, then you say, well, how would you want to remember to bring your backpack? I've been forgetting my backpack every morning. So how would you remember to bring mm-hmm. your backpack to school? Well, I don't mm-hmm. know. They'll say. So then you, it's a long, hard deal with getting your kid to think, because these are kids that just say I don't know and they push the solution back to the parent but ultimately you can mm-hmm. train your kid to say well what well is there anything you do remember to take with you in the morning well I remember to take my hat well where do you put your hat well I put it over here where do you put it on I put it on when I'm in my bedroom so that's not going to help them take their backpack because they have, eventually they have to recognize that if they get their backpack left near the door they have to see it so then they learn the skill mm-hmm. of putting it where it has to be seen. So then they figure that out. So then they learn to put things in certain spots so that they're mm-hmm. taking their backpack. Now, you get a parent that says, take your backpack. Don't forget your backpack. Don't forget your backpack. The kid just puts the backpack anywhere because they don't have to learn any skill of where to put it so that they'll remember it. That's a good point. Hmm. So much to learn. So much to manage. Yes. You know, unfortunately, as parents, you d- we don't have parenting classes to begin with, which is really a shame that our education system doesn't have that. Because a good percentage of the population has children. <laughs> yeah. Then the problem is going to be what what's recommended. And if you if you mm-hmm. look at the if you look at the trend, the trend is going to be more diagnoses more special interventions that assume everybody, all these kids are incompetent. How many kids are going to get a diagnosis? ADHD, um, Asperger's, uh, uh, bipolar, depressive, mm-hmm. anxiety, and then every parent's going to be told they need a special regime, 
because the kid's defective. So you're going to get 50% of the population with defective kids that need some special compensatory intervention. Then you're going to have psychologists that are going to invent solutions because the kid's defective that are going to keep the kid defective because if you assume you're defective, you're always going to be defective. And then you're going to mm. get... Uh, then you're going to get another group of people that are going to say uh, you've got to let the kids, you can't interfere with the kid because the kid can't have to have, be expressive. So then you can get kids that don't, don't really um, modulate very well to take care of others. Then you get a, a group that says, no, you've got to be strict with kids. So who's going to decide what to do? Even if, you, even if you could send them to a school, how many people are doing what I'm suggesting to do? Yet it makes total sense to me. You mm-hmm. give the number one mm-hmm. the number one seller is one two three one two three magic, which is one two three. You're gonna get it. You're gonna get a problem if you don't do what I say. Now that's the number one buy-in. Yet, what does that do for anybody? Would you say that um, in your clinical um, practice, going uh, when when parents bring their children into you? Or your staff, um, that their success rate is higher out of a result of this no-nonsense nurturing, um, you know, your guide for nurturing the self-reliance and co- cooperation of the children? Well, I, the problem is going to be if I'm, if I'm scheduled out with lots and lots of clients and people seem to stay with me and uh, see it as helpful, my experience is that I'm helping the people that are involved with me. And uh, if I look at the outcomes of what they're reporting from, the, like the Johns Hopkins study, which said that six years out the kids are doing no better than unmedicated kids, I think I can do better than that. So what do you got to lose? You, mm-hmm. you, you, if, what am I competing against? I'm competing against no effect. So and then the, the problem is we, we already have a lot of data on what happens when you you do contingency management with people, which we get that from the weight loss places and the uh, residential mm-hmm. settings and the institutions. We call it resident, you, you've been um, uh, institutionalized. That's, we even have a word for it to say what happens to a person when they're managed by other people. Mm-hmm. So why would I repeat that as a therapy? So then you say, well, I already know what the outcomes are from the other ways, but everybody's mm-hmm. still going to do it. Now, you, you may have to manage people in a jail a certain way, but do you want to really turn your child's social patterning into a metaphor of similar to what a jail does, which is you mm-hmm. sit in a chair, you go with isolation booth, if you don't like, I don't like what you did, or you, I'll, mm-hmm. give you, I'll give you a treat because you said, did what I said. Now you're not going to mm-hmm. tell me you didn't do it because I won't give you the treat. Or what if I don't give you the treat and you object to it? Then we have a big fight. Who, now, now you're mad at me because I control everything. Now you're going to have to steal the treats from me. They won't give them to you. <laughs> what a predicament. So, Craig, why don't you um, tell the listeners again the title of your book and where they can purchase it, and also um, if they can reach you, what's the best way to do that? Okay, so the title of my book is um, Parenting Your Child with ADHD, A No-Nonsense Guide for Nurturing Self-Reliance and Cooperation. And uh, you can purchase it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble uh, carries uh, a copy in every store across the country. 
Uh, you can get in, uh, all the major booksellers. Uh, and then you can go to my website, which is um, craigweiner.com, which is C-R-A-I-G-W-I-E-N-E-R.com. And you can see the books I've written and some other some presentations, some materials about what I do. And there's a contact Dr. Craig Weiner uh, page there, and you can always contact me through the uh, contact Dr. Craig Weiner, and uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Wonderful. Well, we've run out of time. I hope that our listeners got all that information down. You know, Craig, I one of the reasons why I asked you back on our show this year is because I'm in, incredibly grateful to you for the work that you do and the um, the hindsight that you have and the experience to help parents that have ADHD children. And I personally want to thank you so much for being on our show this evening. Oh, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, being on the show, and uh, so I hope it was helpful for people. Extremely. All right, listeners, please tune in again next Wednesday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time and 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Thank you again, and have a wonderful evening. Good night to all. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? Thank you, listeners, for um, tuning in today. I just wanted to remind you that the entire contents of this radio show are based upon the opinions of Denise Messenger and her guests. The information on the show, it's not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional, and it's also not intended as, as real medical advice. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from our guests and the experience of Denise and her community. We encourage you to make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional of your choice. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Thank you and good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.